Hi, I'm Aman Bathija with the, trans with the Texas Tribune. I'm a transportation reporter there, and we're going to get started now. Uh, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, thank you for uh, making it to the end of the day. Uh, this is our last panel of the day, and it's going to be a one-on-one -on -one with Phil Wilson. Uh, it's an hour-long event, and we're going to make sure to save at least 15 minutes at the end for uh, Q&A. Um, I'm required to say that please turn off your phones unless you are tweeting. If you are, the hashtag we are using is TribuneFest. One thing I'm just going to add, because uh, someone else asked me earlier, um, don't tweet to at Phil Wilson. That's not this guy. That's like a computer programmer in Nashville. <laughs> uh, and if you don't know, Phil Wilson is the executive director of the Texas Department of Transportation. Before joining TxDOT in 2011, Wilson served as senior vice president of public affairs and, and a corporate officer for Luminant, the largest electric generation company in Texas. In 2007, Governor Perry appointed Wilson as secretary of state. In that position, he served as the Chief Elections Officer and Chief International Protocol Officer for Texas. Bill, thank you for being with us. Well, good to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, this is actually good timing. You started at TxDOT last October, right? I did. So you're, you're just about at a year here. Uh, how do you feel that year has gone so far? It's gone very fast. <laughs> um, the, the first thing I did was you have 25 district offices across the state. And you know it's a big state if, you're, if you grew up here. But you go see 25 districts all the way from El Paso to the Atlanta district, which is by Texarkana, down to the far district in the valley. And uh, you get a real sense of the breadth and depth of the state and the uh, 170,000 plus miles of road we've got to take care of. So uh, it's gone quickly. Uh, it's been a great first year, and I've really enjoyed getting to meet and work with a tremendous group of dedicated Texans at TxDOT. Uh, you were a somewhat of a surprise pick when you were an when Governor Perry recommended you, uh, because um, previous, a lot of the previous heads of Texas had come from within the organization or had some sort of a little more of a transportation background for, uh, had, have you found that being an outsider to the agency has helped, kind of seen with fresh eyes? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that I never talked to the governor about this job. Oh. So uh, this came through a, a search process in the committee through the commission. So uh, I just want to make clear that this was not a, uh, a political and or mm -hmm. I never had a conversation with him about this in this Sorry role. About that. That's okay. I think it, but it's important to clarify mm -hmm. that sure. when you're talking about opportunities like this. Um, what I found it to be is that when I worked in the governor's office as his deputy chief of staff and the secretary of state, there are fundamental questions in the organization, in the governor's office in particular, where you're running a $80 billion a year plus enterprise and you've got uh, tens of thousands of employees that you're trying to make sure the policy initiatives are underway and executed on. And so you're, whether you're dealing with economic development, health and human services, transportation, then you're in an epicenter role of asking the right questions and hopefully getting good answers about how you execute on policy and developing the right policy. And then when we went to the private sector for a few years, being in a, a very large environment, which is very similar to transportation, uh, electric utility industry, uh, where I came from, um, about 6,000 employees in our company, uh, largest power generator in the state, uh, multi-billion dollar enterprise, and I was around a lot of really smart, talented people that were focused on delivering a great product, which was electricity to the state. And so going into transportation, I think in some ways, uh, I was able to bring a blend of the public sector having been in public life for a period of time, uh, the private sector experience I had, an analogous type of industry, and they're really going to ask you the questions about how we do things the way we do them, uh, what are the best ways to do them, are there ways to find alternatives, and really bring a blend of some great people in TxDOT who'd been there a long time and had a great institutional knowledge. And at the same time, we had a, a series of restructuring reports, the Grant Thornton Report, Sunset Commission, Restructuring Council, all had very significant recommendations on how TxDOT needed to operate. We need to be more transparent. We need to have more of a customer service approach to how we did our business. Uh, really have public involvement, modernize our agency. And that really created, not to use the pun, too much a roadmap uh, for TxDOT and how we were successful. And so by doing that, uh, we were going to go in and make, I think, significant positive change to an agency that had a great history of building great roads and bridges. I think our product, as far as anywhere in the United States, uh, I compared to anybody's. It's really a tremendous product, but as far as how they run their IT, their information technology, how they run their human resources, how they did their financing operation with getting the best and the brightest to support what had been a good team, but to make it better. 
had delivered projects, uh, conference development agreements, toll roads, or design build, a lot of those things, uh, I think we're able to find ways to improve. And so uh, coming in and being able to ask the new questions with a fresh set of eyes, taking those recommendations and then going forward uh, to make it better, I, I think is, uh, has been a good complimentary experience with what I brought to the table. Can you talk a little bit about some of those changes that you've instituted in that first year? Well, we reorganized the whole agency. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a, that's a pretty monumental task. We uh, had the opportunity to go out and bring in some very significant people into new roles, um, first and foremost. We brought in a man by the name of Russell Zapalak. Russell's our new chief planning and projects officer. Russell was the national transportation director for HDR, which is a premier engineering firm. He's also the past president of the Public-Private Partnership Association. Russell is a uh, native Texan and had been on an airplane traveling across the country in the past 10 years of his life, he was ready to stay home for a while. And so we recruited Russell to come in and help run our, our planning and projects office. We also got Mark Williams to be his deputy. Mark, also a native Texan, uh, former Kentucky Transportation Commissioner. Uh, Mark is a, a planning expert. He's a planning guru. We're able to recruit Mark to come into the agency. Uh, a man by the name of Ben Asher. Ben came from New York. He's uh, a familiar bond training guy. And uh, Ben is helping us redo our financing portfolio, kind of leveraging dollars in a smart way, refinancing those opportunities we can, developing financial packages. We recruited Carlos Swanky to come in and run our environmental services area. Carlos had been with TxDOT uh, 20 years ago and gone to the private sector, uh, was able to recruit him to come back. He's a NEPA expert. NEPA is the federal uh, process you go for environmental clearance. So Carlos has come in and really revamped our entire environmental process. Uh, those are examples of the type of people we've been able to go get to this agency. And so uh, bringing them in, and they're subject matter experts, they're hardworking people of great integrity, uh, they love transportation, uh, they have put a set of fresh eyes around how we're doing our business and really doing things that uh, the agency need to focus on a long time ago. So you keep your best product, which are your roads and bridges. Those things you're really, really proud of, and we do a great job of learning from the state. At the same time, coming into your business processes, your practices, how you spend your money. Mm -hmm. Are there smarter ways to spend your money? Uh, can you find savings uh, in a way that you hadn't done before? Scott Leonard also joined us. Scott came from uh, Energy Future Holdings, and before that he was in McKinsey. McKinsey is a premier consulting firm in the United States. Uh, University of Northwestern grad, MBA, Georgia Tech, EE. And he's coming as our chief strategy administration officer. So we've got some really good people that have come in uh, I think to compliment the team we've had, like John Barton is my deputy, and James Bass, our CFO, and make an even better team. You know, we're a $10 billion a year agency. We have 11,000 employees, uh, and we're a very large business enterprise. And our focus is delivering a safe system for the state, connectivity for the people of Texas, and uh, working to deliver that every day with a really good team. Uh, you know, the panels all day today here, we've been hearing about how uh, Transportation funding is a very difficult subject in, well, across the country, but especially in Texas. Uh, gas taxes and keeping up with uh, the state's needs. And we have lawmakers in two different panels talking about next session and whether there's any kind of solution to try and bring more revenue to TxDOT. At the same time, uh, during this campaign season, I spoke to candidates who would say that, you know, when you ask them about what do you do about transportation funding, they'd say, well, we have to cut out the fat at TxDOT. We yeah. have to. Uh, there's, there's, they're not spending the money as best they can, and we can't do anything until we handle that. First off, is, is how much fat is there at TxDOT? Great. I think that's a, a tremendous lead. So our budget's $10 billion a year. We have 11,000 people. We spend $560 million a year on payroll. So 5.6% of our budget goes to people. That's a pretty lean operation when you have 11,000-plus people. Uh, of that 11,000-plus people, about half of them, about 6,000, are maintenance workers. They fill potholes. They do striping. They put up signs. Uh, they do your basic everyday maintenance. So in a $10 billion budget, we have about 5.5%. So you can say, I'll say for the sake of argument, every person you have is fat and waste. You now have gotten $500 million to put on roads. And I need a billion dollars a year in just routine maintenance, I'm short. That doesn't address capacity for new build. Uh, it doesn't address what I'm going to do with the energy sector, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And so uh, I think we're doing a, a commendable job of stretching those dollars out with the people we've got who work very hard for the state. 
with a great deal of integrity. Uh, we've put a couple of things in that I think are going to save us a lot of money because I'm not going to accept the premise that we just have a perfect scenario. Uh, because I think that's a fair question people should ask, have you gotten rid of the inefficiencies and in in a way of doing it better? We have set up a new program under Russell, who I talked about, where we're going to put um, our ability to do planning and forecasting in a better way, project management office. He's hired one named Lynn Isaac. Lynn came from the Florida Department of Transportation, private sector, and then came in to join us. Through Lynn's efforts, we're going to save $200 million a year in better planning and better forecasting, much like treating it like a business. Because prior, we didn't have the ability to say, when are you spending your money? How are you spending your money? When is that project supposed to be done? We just focused on the project, as opposed to managing the project up front between right away, the legal process you had to go underway, the environmental clearance process. We have a bunch of sequencing before you ever get to the building process. So Lynn, she's a rock star, and she's doing a great job. We'll save a couple hundred million dollars there. We've also integrated a proposal. We're going to save $50 million. You're going to taking our right-of-way activities and our environmental overlaying them together. Because prior, it had been a sequence step where you had to do one, then two, then three, then four. That makes sense. Now we have one and one A, two and two A, three A and three A. And so they're running on a parallel path in this process. We think that'll save us $50 million a year by doing that. And then we have things that are as simple as this. This is my favorite anecdote story, which I've told you before, but I think it's a, an interesting story. Um, I've asked all of our tech stuff people to bring me their very best and brightest ideas. How do you save our agency money? How can we be good stewards of the taxpayer dollars? One of my guys came in and said, I can save you two, up to $2 million a year. So my ears perk up. That sounds very interesting. What is that? He goes, you know, we paint all of our vehicles something called federal yellow. What's federal yellow? Well, of our 9,000 vehicles, we order a large truck, a backhoe, some big piece of equipment. We'll paint it our own color. Over 10 years, we'll save up to $20 million by the time our fleet turns over by no longer painting federal yellow. Other example, is we're kind of interactive on Twitter and high tech, we've been using something called Novell GroupWise as the agency. Novell GroupWise, we've now transferred to Microsoft Outlook. I think Microsoft is going to take off. I believe in it. Uh, that's a joke. Okay. And so uh, the idea being, by doing just a simple thing like changing your IT architecture from Novell GroupWise to Microsoft Outlook, we'll save $2 million a year. So you get these additive effects of no longer doing federal yellow by transferring your, your uh, software system migration for email to a different system, by having a better integrated right-of-way environmental, by better having project management discipline, you save $260, $270 million. The third thing we're doing is I put in a request for information. That's the first step when you want to do something as an agency, for privatization. Uh, we did a pilot project in Houston. Uh, we put an RFI out that turned into an actual contract uh, two months ago where I said, okay, I've only got so many people to do all this routine maintenance work. If the private sector could come in and do some of that work in Houston, how much money can we save and get the same level of performance in the process? And it came back a 35 plus million dollar deal and they came back at 25 plus million dollars. $10 million swag between those two. So two weeks ago, I put out a new RFI for all of the Metroplex, Houston, down to Austin, and the interstates in between and said, Let's come back because you take those same scenarios of math, we think we can save 120 plus million dollars over five years. So between being smarter internally, getting a really great team in place, doing questioning, are we doing it the right way, and being creative enough to go out and say, let's take an appropriate level of risk in the process, can we get a better process for the state? And so I think it's incumbent upon us as we go into legislative session, to be able to answer a legislator, senator, house member, when they say, what have you done internally? What have you done with the tax dollars you've been given? Have you thought about doing the following? Privatization. Have you thought about your own internal systems? Where can you save us money? Because all the dollars we save would go back in to infrastructure for the state. Uh, one thing that uh, TxDOT has actually gotten in the news recently about is um, approving a toll road, or approving a speed limit on a toll road of 85 miles per hour. Uh, it's going to be the highest in the country. Some say the Western Hemisphere. I don't know if you've been able to confirm that. I haven't. Uh, just first off, are you, are you completely comfortable with that, that decision and a road with that speed limit? Absolutely. I think the first thing you have to uh, go to is that when a road is designed, you look at the geometry and the topography. Mm -hmm. So this road was designed uh, 
to go to that speed limit. And the second thing, engineers go out, and I'm going to view an engineer's life as like a medical doctor's. So when an MD puts his Hippocratic oath there doing no harm, when a professional engineer says, this road is safe, I'm going to stamp it with my PE, he's putting his credibility, his license, his integrity on the line. So when he steps out and says, this road is safe, that's what's important to me. And it's a toll road when you can get on it, if you so choose. And second, individuals want to offer premium service. If you want to drive faster and it's safe, primarily, you should have the option to do so. Now, you can't go faster in 85. So we will have law enforcement on that road. We're going to enforce the speed limit as a speed limit for that facility. Uh, and in the contract terms, it said, if we meet the safety requirements and we meet uh, the obligations that we have in our contract, we can go ahead and do it, and we did. Is it something that may spread to future road projects? You know, I think every road's unique. I think this is out there is a road that goes around a major city. Mm -hmm. As I said, the topography, the geometry, the engineering was able to say it was the right thing to do and you could do it. So I think it depends on the project. Well, and speaking of toll roads, I heard from a panel earlier today uh, some lawmakers talking about just they feel that given the funding situation that tolling has become kind of a de facto aspect of every major road project in the state and that they're kind of stuck having to pursue that every time whether they want to or not. I was wondering, do you feel that it's, is, is it possible to move forward on a major project now without tolls, or is that just inevitable? I think tolls are a tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also an option choice that a community can make. I think it's very important to have a takeaway on tolling that's this. This is something the legislature decided to do. So this is not a TxDOT woke up one day and said it's a TxDOT owns this process. The legislature mm -hmm. passed a bill. Uh, they passed things called Conference Development Agreements, called a CDA. Last legislative session, they passed the use of seven of those, of which we're executing on six. One is state local. And then we go to something called a 1420 committee. A 1420 committee is comprised of local elected officials and people who have interest in that community, who then take a vote locally if they wish to pursue a concession or a toll road. So you've had elected legislators by the people. You've had elected officials by the local community who come together. They have an open public participation process. And they make a determination that if they wish to have a toll road, they wish to have a toll road. And if they don't, they don't. It's a choice point. The beauty of toll roads in today's kind of economic environment is that, for example, we're doing the 290 project in Houston. We're going to announce that uh, uh, in a press conference, a continuation of the Rider 42, which I'll get into in a minute, that 290 project as a toll road will advance that project by 20 years. If you've ever been on 290 in Houston, that's a huge amount of time. Because the question is, either you take the resources you're going to have in the future, pay as you, pay as you go, and say, do I want to spend pay as you go because what I have resources today would take me 20 years to get to in Houston, or can I do a toll road today on managed lanes down the middle? And the people in that community, working with Hector, the Harris County uh, Toll Authority there in Harris County, have said, we want to have a toll facility there in our area. And uh, I, I think it's a choice point. The challenge we've got, I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day, just got from Tennessee. Tennessee's largest project ever was $105 million. They have a pay-as-you-go system. $105 million doesn't get you very much in this day and age. If you go north of DFW, there's DFW Connect piece right by the airport. That project's an extraordinarily complex, large project. It's seven miles in length. It has multiple lanes, but it's seven miles in length. It costs $1.2 billion. That's one project. The Horseshoe Project, which is south of downtown Dallas by Reunion Arena, where 30 comes into downtown right there in Dallas, that's an $818 million project. And so that project is not a toll project. That is a prop, Proposition 12 project, uh, some state money put in there, some local money put in there. Uh, so I think it depends on the project, depends on the use, depends on the facility. Uh, but it's a tool you have to utilize in today's economic climate you know, with the resources we have to say we want to move forward. Local community has chosen to do that within a CDA authority, and we go build it. Or if you are a local community and you don't have one of the six of the seven TxDOT CDAs, if you're NTTA, which is their turnpike authority in Dallas, or you're Hector in Houston, you can make choices to build. Uh, but once again, that is a local decision, and people can choose to drive on that road or not drive on that road. Uh, and we're never going to convert a free facility into a toll facility. You'll always have that option uh, to drive free on the side or on those lanes that are there. 
but we're not converting anything. And I guess as you were saying, the, they have the option of choosing a toll or not, but if they don't, it often means the project will be delayed much longer because the money isn't there. Right. Are you finding situations where they often choose not to go for tolling? I think it depends on the city. Mm -hmm. uh, but even San Antonio had uh, been the most recent that had been not as aggressive in the past. Mm -hmm. And they weren't even about moving on 281 and 1604 to a tolling project uh, through their RMA. And then it's not a tech stop project uh, directly per se, that we're going to have some managed lanes in the middle of 281. Uh, but we're partnering with the RMA in that effort. Um, so I think it depends on the city. They really have to make a determination because, in fact, the scenario, we, we're a billion dollars short in our maintenance program uh, with the desire to keep 90% of our roads at 70% or greater as a score. Now, that's a pavement score. What that means is you go out and you measure your pavement. Does it have potholes? Is it safe? Are you having shoulders being ripped up? Can you grade yourself on that? We partnered with the Texas Transportation Institute on taking our scores. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have out there other significant resources, the energy sector. Uh, we're estimating right now, just in this next biennium, we need about $1.6 billion to take away what's happening in Eagleford and Barnett, Haynesville, the wind sector, and the panhandle, where none of these roads were built for 18 wheelers that weighed 80,000 pounds. And so uh, these are all unique financial constraints because you have 1,000 people a year moving to a day moving to Texas. You've had, in the past 20 years, since the gas tax last went up, our population's grown by 54%. Our new capacity's grown by 11%. It's a math problem. And uh, it's what we're focused on, diligently to take every resource we can, stretch it out, and build the best, most viable transportation system in the United States. You mentioned the um, trucks that are involved in drilling in the Barnett and Eagleport Trails. These are like hundreds of trucks that have to go to a well yeah. to drill and tearing up the roads. You, you, you've formed a, a working group or a committee, right, to yeah. kind of look at this. Are you planning to make recommendations for the next session? We are. So um, when I got there, one of the things that jumped out at me is that what's happening in Texas right now is akin to the 1849 California gold rush. If you go down to south of San Antonio, down to Laredo, and you take that whole section in our state, uh, we have a tremendous economic growth and energy activity. The shale play is great for economic development. It's great for jobs. It's a, it's a wealth boom for our state. And that's all very positive. At the same time, there are things happening to our roads and facilities that none of us ever anticipated that are causing huge challenges for us as a state. And so we put together a working task force of the Railroad Commission, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, uh, TxDOT, uh, other state agencies involved. We put together companies from the Texas Association of uh, Natural Gas Association, TIPRO, the Independent Producer Royalty Owners, uh, and other groups that are very much involved in this activity to sit around the table and talk about how we find solutions to make at least policy considerations for the legislature and how would they look at that. And so we had a, have had a series of meetings. The first couple were in Austin. Then we went to Cleveland, which is south of Fort Worth, which is where the Barnett Shell activity had taken place. We then went to Midland, Odessa. We had a conversation around the Permian Basin. We were in Laredo earlier this week and had a conversation. They were going to go to the Panhandle in October. And the math is very extraordinary, and uh, it, it truly is tremendous. So if you're going to drill one gas well, one well, that's equivalent to having more than 13, you have 1,300 trucks that have to deliver it. So 1,300 trucks are needed to deliver the, the sand and the water to the fracking activity. On a use of regular maintenance, about 300 trucks every year. What really gets extraordinary is those 1,300 trucks are equivalent to 8 million vehicles traveling on that road. And to maintain that is 2 million vehicles traveling on that road. So then as a layperson, I said, well, what does that mean to what happens to the road? That's like a bunch of big numbers, 8 million, 2 million. And uh, a road that's built for 25 to 30 years, lifespan left on it, is often taken down to 5 to 7 years. So your lifespan is completely uh, shrunk in the process. And that doesn't even include county roads, which are having the same level of constriction and, and constraints placed on them. And so through this whole exercise, we've identified the challenges we face, mm -hmm. some cost factors involved, a consideration about how we work together in the conversation, because industry has to have a seat at the table. But there are also ones that need these roads. If they don't have solid roads to drive on, they can't get to the well to actually get their product out. 
until we have pipelines established and you have gathering stations set up for this natural gas in the future, you don't have the opportunity. And so uh, it's a very important task and one that really isn't covered by current method of finance. This was never anticipated through the gas tax to cover the kind of uh, facility challenges we have right now. And so is, is the thinking that perhaps next session there'll be some sort of fee to, the, to every well or uh, have you figured out a mechanism to try and? I think all options are on the table for the legislature to consider. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, I think as the agency, it's incumbent upon us to present the problem, to have a conversation around it as it relates to public safety, uh, as it relates to taking care of facility. It's, it's almost, it's a deferred maintenance issue. So if you have a house, and this is my best analogy, and you have shingles blow off your house, uh, you know you gotta get that house fixed because if you don't do it in three or four years, you need a brand new roof. And by deferring that maintenance, you get four to five times more money to fix it in the future than if you fix it today. So it really is a deferred maintenance question on the Eagleford Shale or the Barnett Shale or other shales because you're saying, I know I've got this today, I can armor up the roads, which is what we call it. By armoring up a road, you put shoulders on there, you make the concrete deeper, and so when a truck goes down that, it is much less likely to cause a level of, of a facility challenges and constraints it's got currently uh, by its current construction. Um, High-speed rail. I know that TxDOT started, I believe, earlier this year looking at kind of studying that issue more. What prompted that? I think it's a good public policy conversation to have. Uh, we had some opportunities for funding from D.C. to do a study. We wanted to look at that. Uh, it's something we've talked about in the state for 25 years. You know, you all go back to the mid-80s when we were talking to the French about building a high-speed rail line. And as our states continue to grow, and you're looking for other transportation uh, opportunities, we need to have that conversation. What's interesting to me on the high-speed rail side, even since we started this conversation, there are members of the private sector who are very interested in building this road themselves, this train track themselves. And so I think our job is to facilitate the conversation for the private sector to come in if possible to really do it. So it involves the environmental clearance process. It involves uh, where they're gonna put a facility up. Can we make sure we're in alignment that way? Mm -hmm. Can the agency be a good partner in making sure that whatever potential impediments are in the way, we're doing that. So I think high-speed rail is one of those things that uh, it will be a very significant multi-billion dollar project, whoever does it. And they're gonna have to look at uh, what the return on investment's gonna be and whether it's a good thing to do for them or not. But I think we as the agency can certainly facilitate a study a route analysis, uh, a departure in uh, demarcation point, and how it kind of all works from a logistical front end and back end and vice versa. Do you think it's gonna have to be a private venture that moves forward with that, or is a public venture possible in Texas, you think? You know, I, I think it's most likely in today's environment it's gonna be a private venture. Why is that? I think with the challenges we have with trying to address our basic infrastructure and you're looking at multi-billion dollar play, uh, most likely the private sector is going to have to come in and say we think we can make money on it and provide a valuable service to Texas like any other service would be. You know, I, I've heard you in recent speeches talk a lot about um, kind of TxDOT as a force for economic development. And, uh, you know, yes, you know, you have a highway and gas stations and diners will pop up along it and stuff, but it seems like you're trying to emphasize that more. Do you think that's an aspect of transportation development that isn't given enough attention usually? I think it's the, uh, what transportation is. So as an agency, uh, we're not a transportation agency. That's our product. We're an economic development people agency. And in order to have these rivers of trade, which roads are, I-35 is a river of trade. It's the Mississippi River. It's analogous to that. That you look at what happens on I-35 where you have the explosive growth of NAFTA. For the 10th straight year, Texas is the largest importing and exporting state. And you go all the way from the border of Mexico to Canada with what's happened. You take a look at the Panama Canal, the expansion there. And the, the committee stood up behind that. And what may or may not happen, but in the sense, the growth you've had. And so as you look at manufacturing, light and heavy, as you look at uh, opportunities for logistical companies, as you look at the kind of growth that's taking place across our state, in order for you to have that vibrant economic development climate, you've got to have a sustainable infrastructure and ecosystem around that. You know, one of the other things is if you're in a major metropolitan area for economic development, if you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston in particular, and you want to come in and relocate, 
Um, talking about high school debate again, I've got that 30-minute marker popping up. Uh, <laughs> that uh, if you're looking at that, you want to know where you get your employees from. So if you know your employees have to be within a half an hour of where you're located in your business, the more congestion you have and the more people there are without an ability to move from point A to point B, you in, a, you in effect have said to restrict your workforce availability. And that's a real problem. You're trying to look for whatever your demographic is. If it's well-educated, if it's skilled labor, uh, if it's a particular type of skill set and a subset you know to have a population pool to work around. And so it's very important that you have the ability to move in mobility in those congested areas to get a workforce. So if you're an employer looking to relocate and or expand, one of those questions you always ask, you know, do I have power? Do I have available water? And how can I get around your community that way, plus an educated workforce? And just one of those, you know, basic tenets and foundational questions you have to ask for economic development. And I think it's the fundamental thing we as an agency every day have to ask is how can I incentivize and create the right tools through connectivity, through congestion mitigation, through jump-starting projects like 290 that are 20 years ahead of time now because of what we're doing, so that you have the vibrancy of the economy in our state that for the most part, compared to parts of the country, is pretty healthy. Well, we had a panel earlier where um, the head of the, I think it was the Central Austin Regional Mobility Authority, I believe it was him, who said that um, Dell had moved a facility from Round Rock to Tennessee and told him that congestion was a major reason for why they felt Tennessee made more sense. Are, are you hearing that at all more? Or is, are, is, is Texas reaching some kind of a crisis point almost in terms of congestion and I think we're in a real challenge right now with our congestion points. Uh, we have a, a bill that passed last legislative session, uh, Rider 42, mm -hmm. and partnered with Texas Transportation Institute. We're going through the process right now of identifying our new most 100 congested points. Now within that, we're making progress on knocking some of those out uh, through our conference and development agreement, CDAs I talked about. You look at 290 in Houston, uh, you look at what we're doing on uh, 35E in Dallas-Fort Worth. You're looking at in North Texas, North Terran Expressway 3A, 3B in Fort Worth. Uh, those are all very significant gesture points. So we're doing what we can with the resources we've got uh, and the funding we were able to identify this year, the $2 billion additional funding, to put those into projects immediately and be able to say, with the resources we have, we're addressing those, we're being smart about it, or move them forward more quickly. You, you want to stay in front of this as fast as you can in the process. Uh, I had a chance to go to uh, a group called WASHTO. WASHTO, or the Western Association of State Transportation Executives, last spring, or the summer, in, uh, in the summer. And, you know, I view our problem as glass half full. If you're in California, you're in other states, uh, they're having real economic problems and constraints. I mean, they're having to lay off significant amounts of workforce. They don't have a, a sustainable level of funding. Uh, we have some challenge with our funding sources because of how the math works. So uh, we're plugging every dollar we can as fast as possible to address connectivity and congestion mitigation. Are you looking at, I mean, Texas is growing so fast, but I know certain parts are growing faster than others. Does that kind of uh, guide your decision making in terms of where to put money and thinking, you know, this city or this neighborhood's getting more dense and so we better kind of get ahead of that and well a lot of our money is driven by formula so when you look at what's happened between the population uh, the lane miles we have to take care of uh, the number of cars so we we have a, a formula process that goes through that so a lot of the dollars are driven by that especially on the maintenance side but if you're looking at where you're going to put in for example new tolling opportunities mm -hmm. if a community says we're able to step up and put a dollar in because we can leverage that project. We're going to obviously be very aggressive trying to put a dollar into match that because it could jumpstart a project. I think that's one of the takeaways we really focused on the agencies I've been there is partnership. Whether you're working with a local metropolitan planning organization, these MPOs are the local communities, uh, in a sense, advisors on transportation. They're the ones who say this is an important project for us. This is how we're going to pay for it. We're going to partner with TxDOT. And so we have made a very proactive engagement with our MPOs, especially the large ones in Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, sit around the table and say, what are key projects we want to focus on as a group? Are we making sure we're in alignment that way? How do we tie our resources so that the resources you bring to the table, the resources we bring to the table are best aligned, and we get better projects faster out of that deal? So we really focus in, in a collaborative partnering effort, 
And I'm very proud of what the agency's done on that. Well, I have a couple more questions, but first I wanted to just see if, uh, does anyone have any questions for Phil? Yes. I'm sorry, would you mind going to the mic? Just trying to record this. And What percent of your budget? What percent of your budget um, is derived from federal money? Eighty percent. Wow. Uh, so what happens is we pay for the road, and we submit receipts to the federal government to get reimbursed. And so uh, the gas tax monies we get, we go in to build, and then we submit to the federal government for reimbursement of those proceeds. And my second part of that. Uh, has there been any money available that because of political differences between our state and federal leadership that we have not been able to get for some of our projects? I don't think so. Okay, thank you. Now, let me kind of add a little bit to your, to your question. We don't get back every dollar we send. So just because we're getting uh, reimbursement of that 80% for roads, that for the dollar I send, I'm getting about 84 cents back for transportation. So I have a very large shortfall. We're a donor state. Not only are we a donor state, we are the, uh, in last place as far as our rate of return on that. Uh, there's a lot of ins and outs of the math, but the simple way to get it for roads, for transportation from the roadside is about 84%. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Has that gotten worse recently? The, it's actually gotten a little better. Uh, it depends on how you do the calculation. We have a 95% requirement for the rate of return. Mm -hmm. uh, that 95% though covers transit, it covers other transportation, it covers you know all the stuff. By the time you just put it into roads, it's about 84%. If you take just a dollar in versus a dollar back, we're at a dollar oh three right now or so, a dollar oh four. But that's because the federal government in the last couple of years is sending more money back to states than going to the trust fund for gas tax receipts. We're still in last place. So even though we're getting more back in this gross dollar amount, we're still in last place when it comes to rate of return and we're getting our money from. So other, other states are getting even more than... Yeah, so the dollar three we get, they get a dollar thirty, dollar forty. Hmm. So uh, we, it'd be better for us if we didn't send it to D.C. in that process from far keeping our local dollars in our state. Why do you think Texas has been stuck in last place? It's probably above my pay grade. Uh, well, in, in all seriousness, when I went to this Washington, or I went to an Astro meeting, you had all these guys sitting on the table, and the guy from Boston says, I don't even own a car. So if my counterpart in another state doesn't even own a vehicle, and I go to West Texas, it takes you 20 minutes to go to your driveway in West Texas, just to, just to get started anywhere. Uh, it's a different mindset. So if you're in the Northeast, and you're doing public transit, and that's your method of transportation, and you're in Boston, or you're in Rhode Island or Delaware and places in the Northeast, that's how you get around it. So there's a large public subsidy of that that comes out of the gas tax to pay for those things. Uh, our focus has been on roads because we are a large state, we have connectivity. And so when you have two senators and multiple congressmen from those states, and those two senators add up for Boston and, and Massachusetts and Rhode Island, Delaware, New Hampshire, you get all these votes. They go, hey, we like what we got. Why should we let you have any more of your money back? And that makes perfect economic sense if you're in the Northeast other states because it doesn't benefit them to give us a larger rate of return in the process. I think that's why it is. Anyone else have a question? Phil, what's been the best part of the job? Working with the people. Uh, it's a great agency. They're really a lot of integrity. They work really hard. They care about the state. Uh, spending time with them. Uh, brainstorming on creative solutions, trying to stretch a dollar to dollar twenty-five, a dollar fifty. Uh, being with them on innovative ways to deliver projects to Texans, uh, they love this state, and uh, it's been really good. What about the next legislative session? Um, it's going to be your first in this position. Um, are, are you? Is there anything that TxDOT is hoping for other than, you know, perhaps more revenue? Well, I think we need more conference development agreement CDAs. I think it's been a good tool to have for those us, lo, us and local communities to work on. Uh, some number of that's out there that may come to or working with the local MPOs, as I talked about, identifying where those could be. Mm -hmm. And are there projects that we can deliver? Uh, are there ways to pay for those things, whether it's a concession or a, a 
a design build project or other methods of finance around that. So that's a priority for us. We'd also like some budget flexibility. We run this like a business. For example, if we can save money by leasing our vehicles as opposed to buying them, we'd like to have that conversation. Under the current budget constraint, I can't do this. We'd like 20% budget flexibility like other agencies have to have business, business focus on making the best decisions with tax dollars we possibly can. So that's important for us. So uh, the funding issue is the funding issue, but as far as some internal things for the agency to get better, we'll focus on that. We also want to have the opportunity to show those most congested points and have a plan that says, if you wish to fix this road, if you wish to expand this road, this is what it would cost to do. And really be able to tell the public as a whole a real narrative as opposed to just saying, we need this much money. It's that this much money would go to pay for this kind of project. And I think that's an important takeaway. We can actually point to what we're gonna deliver on in the process. A question. Oh. We've talked a lot about funding the whole the entire day and um, it's been mentioned the possibility of increasing the gas tax to cover some of the, the shortfalls. Um, but we also talk about the public-private partnership and, and tolls. If we were to increase the gas tax, I mean, I've always thought that once it's a toll project, it's always a toll project. Is there ever any turning back if, if we were to raise the gas tax? Could we possibly convert what were toll roads back to publicly funded? I think it depends on the road. Uh, every contract's different. Uh, this is just considered as like you're buying a business. So some toll roads are uh, held by a company at a concession. Other toll roads, you, we've gone to the marketplace and in a sense gotten debt. So you can retire that debt off those bonds you borrowed against. So I think it depends on the road. Uh, every penny you get for the gas tax gets you $110 million. So right now at about 20 cents per gallon on the state side, TxDOT keeps about 15 cents of that. So if you got $110 million off the penny, we'd get about 75 or 80 cents, or $80 million of that. And so if you raised it, in a sense, doubled the gas tax, uh, you get about $2 billion uh, off that. So it kind of gives you a perspective on how expensive it is, even incrementally, to go up that number. So, but I think to your question, it depends on the road, depends on the kind of debt you have, depends who owns it. Some of these toll roads uh, are going to be owned, in a sense, by the state or by the debt holders we're trying to pay back, partnering with our local uh, tolling entity like NTTA uh, or HECTRA, who are gonna be our, they're gonna manage it, in the sense of being the toll collector, but it depends on the project. And I guess I just wanted to ask a follow-up question about that. Um, and the, the privately owned toll roads or public-private partnerships, a lot of those tend to be pretty long contracts. Yeah. Uh, but I guess, it, is, is there a thought that those could be free roads someday after contracts expire? Well, they're leases. Mm -hmm. uh, they're never gonna be owned by anybody but the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you're a concessionaire, you have a, uh, up to a 52-year lease, mm -hmm. at which point in time, it reverts to us. Now, at that point in time, I think it's open-ended what the state does. You're always gonna have, you're always gonna have operations and maintenance. Mm -hmm. You gotta take care of filling the potholes and taking care of mowing the weeds and doing those kind of things. But I think that's open for conversation in the future. Uh, I'll be long past worried about that when some of those take place. But uh, we're, we're focused on getting those built as quickly as possible. Well, and you mentioned uh, doubling the gas tax would bring $2 billion? Well, $110 million for a penny. So you get, you know, $2 billion for 20 cents. And how would that help you in terms of your, how well, far you are each year on even maintaining roads? Would you it, need about a billion dollars a year just to maintain we're short right now. So it'd be about a billion for new development, yeah. I guess. Yeah. That still doesn't feel like a whole lot. <laughs> it, it's, it's a challenge of a big state. Mm -hmm. it, it's the fact that you've got a lot of people here. They're great they're coming. They want to get from point A to point B. It's just a big state, and we're trying to build as quickly as we can. Bill, thanks for doing this. Um, quick question, knowing we've got about a billion dollars worth of maintenance, how many projects do you have that you could let today if you had the money? And then what's, what's that gap in the amount of money that you actually have? Well, that's a great question, Dennis. Uh, we have 2,700 active projects right now. Uh, every district has a certain number of projects that are, in a sense, shovel ready, shovel ready to go. Uh, the big ones right now, uh, that, that big of maintenance we can take care of today so those are kind of in the queue of what we have to go do. 
uh, and we're working through a process right now. The other interesting thing, for every billion dollars you spend on, uh, on new build capacity or other activities, you need about 10% of that for design work. So for every billion, I need to spend about $100 million to do design work. And so we're in that process right now of getting everything on the shelf to get ready for the next level of funding because it's that, that proverbial uh, hamster on the wheel because just you get one out the door, uh, we're ready to go do the next one. Any other questions right now? Well, one more thing I want to ask you about was um, TxDOT recently put out a rural Texas plan, which I found interesting that you know, there, all of the focus is on how do we reduce congestion in the cities, but rural parts of the state are often not ignored, but don't get much attention. Was that something you brought about, or was that more the commission? Both. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a big state. We have 25 districts. We have the big, large districts that we talk about. But you've got the Brownwood district where I grew up. Mm -hmm. You've got the Childress district. You've got the Abilene district, the Atlanta district, the Far district. You've got Lufkin. And so a large part of our population lives in rural Texas. And we need to have a conversation around how we make sure they have connectivity mm -hmm. and they stay safe. You need to have a plan around that. What's it going to cost? Where are you going to put the road? Uh, I think the state, in many ways, despite our, our metropolitan growth, we're a rural state in many ways. And we've got to take care of kind of what made the state great and kind of, I think, the backbone of our culture, where those values come from. And so, Part of that economic development conversation you asked me about happens in the rural stage as well. And so we've never had a rural plan before. This is the first time. And uh, I think it sets the table for a good conversation around you want to take care of your big stuff, you want to take care of congestion, but you also have a conversation around connectivity and safety. Are there certain parts of rural Texas that you are finding are in more need of It's across the state. It's across the state. And is it mostly just maintenance, or is there actually expansion needed? In There's some, some expansion. Uh, you've got some things related to I-69, which is in East Texas. Mm -hmm. It goes all the way from the valley all the way up through Houston into Atlanta by Texarkana. Uh, but you've got parts of West Texas doing the same thing. So it depends on, on the maintenance level and the connectivity side and making sure that trade can flow in a good way, which is back to our economic development part. Well, and I guess I should ask you about trade. Um, some, something we talked about earlier at an earlier panel, Panama Canal. Uh, is going to be expanding and means the bigger ships are going to be able to go through starting in right now I think the estimate is 2015. Right. Uh, is our Texas ports ready? We don't know. I think that's the, the great question. When uh, I got there we stood up a Panama Canal task force and we asked Judge Ed Emmett who's a judge of Harris County to head that up. Uh, prior to his life as elected official he's a transportation expert so he brings a real breadth of experience to the table. And uh, he's leading that effort. We've had a series of meetings, much like our energy task force across the state. They'll have a report for us in November with recommendations. Uh, we have talked to not just the Panama Canal folks, which is really, Panama Canal's a toll road. I mean, you want to know what it is, it's a toll road because your big ships go through and they pay a big toll. One of my favorite Panama Canal stories is that uh, before they had electronic billing and you wanted to go through, before the ship got there, they say, you have to throw a million dollars over the side in cash to a speedboat, and then it would zip its way through to go through to get paid that way. And obviously, things have gotten better since then. But the Panama Canal is a big toll road, and now this expansion in 2014, 2015 creates a new opportunity for these, these large ships. So we're focused on, is Texas ready? If it's not ready, what do you have to do to get ready? If you're not coming here, why are you not coming here? And if we did the following, whatever that may be, dredge our ports, make them deeper, put in more multimodal facilities, including rail, could you do things around that? And so. Uh, the judge is leading that task force. It's, it's uh, been a very good exercise for us. They'll have the report. We'll focus not just on, on freight, though, uh, and things coming in. We also look at exports. How can Texas take advantage of an exporting state? There should be more things we make here from our state to across the world. And the third thing I think is very interesting to look at is what's happened because of the shell activity with potential liquefied natural gas, LNG. So if you look at what's happened, for example, in Beaumont, and this is Maine Nature's River Authority, um, you have an opportunity there. We have Motiva, which has about a $10 billion processing plant, oil and gas, where crude oil is coming up potentially if we had this expansion. It's going to come to anyway, but how much could you, more could you put in the processing part to make it a gasoline? And then you've got the LNG plants. I can remember five years ago uh, when natural gas was at $14 an MCF. And all these plants were being built to handle this liquefied natural gas we're going to ship into Texas because we had a massive energy shortfall and what were we going to do? 
Well, now you've got companies making investments in reverse engineering those LNG plants. They're going to take the Barnett Shale, Eagleford Shale, you name it, that's at $2.50 in MTF today. The price has just collapsed. Uh, now we're going to be an exporter to send that to Japan and to Europe. And so these large ships can come in here. And basically what these large ships are is their big igloo container. So when you were a kid growing up and you had the big thermos, they take this LNG and they freeze it, and you get this massive mathematical differential as frozen LNG. They ship across the ocean, they thaw it out. So it's really cool. And so I think the opportunity for Panama, in addition to freight, uh, in addition to exporting, is an energy possibility there as well. And so this task force is going to come back with some thoughtful recommendations on where we are, what do we have to do, and to make sure we're taking full advantage of our economic opportunity. Do you think, um, I know you said exports were probably kind of more of the focus, but it, with it, regarding imports, uh, I know there's concern that uh, the bigger ships will have bigger containers, and those containers, if transferred to trucks, would be heavier. Uh, do you think TxDOT should or should be moving to allow for heavier trucks on roads? Well, I think it depends on the truck. Uh, we're open to a conversation, and depending on how many axles you have, <coughs> you could go up to 97,000 pounds, and if you had enough axles, you really have an even weight distribution. But I think a pilot project, because if you had a pilot project for consideration, with obviously the legislature we have to work with in their direction, would be if you have these larger ships coming in, could we get more trucks off the road at the same time as opposed to having an 80,000-pound truck? In this process, and can you take advantage of the trade corridor that's taking place? I think it's a conversation we ought to consider and see how it benefits. So at the same time, if you are driving heavier, you probably ought to pay more. So you get the benefit in that process as well as you get to drive potentially. Mm -hmm. You find that trade corridor to go up. At the same time, by being granted this opportunity, you ought to have some costs associated with that as well. Well, is there are there any more questions? Well then, Phil, thank you very Mark, much. Thank for you your very time much. Thank you all very much. Uh, I want to thank all of our. Uh, oh, we hope to see you at the Festival Garden Party taking place from 5 to 8 tonight at Schultz Garden, just two blocks south from the University of on San Jacinto. And thanks again for everybody.